Isn't there a celebrity named Megan Fox? There is, but I'm the cool one. I loved you in Transformers, by the way. Oh, thank <laughs> you. This is my best work. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. DevMind is a software design and development studio in Chicago with expertise in Ruby, JavaScript, and Clojure. We believe that well-crafted software makes life better and our team of designers and engineers is dedicated to that pursuit. We love our customers, we love our team, and we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that we fit the right projects with the right people. Get in touch at devmind.com. That's D-E-V-M-Y-N-D.com. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 154 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Hello from JavaScript Jabber. Avdi Grimm. <laughs> Hello from Pennsylvania. David Brady. Unless directed by a physician, this entire podcast must be finished. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. We have a special guest this week, and that's Megan Fox. Hello, I'm not that Megan Fox. I'm the cool one. There you go. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, sure. So, hi, I'm uh, yeah, I'm Megan Fox. I'm the owner, founder, blah blah of Glass Bottom Games. You might have seen Jones on Fire on every mobile device you possibly own. Uh, it was a critical success, not each financial. Now we're working on Hot Tin Roof, which is a kickstarted game, much bigger, much fancier. Awesome. Sounds like fun. Yeah. So this is your day job. You go and you work on games. How cool is that, right? It's pretty cool. I even work in my basement. So I don't even have to go very far. That's right. <laughs> That's great. Um, I asked you on uh, because I am a huge fan of games and have always been like a terrible game addict. <laughs> and it seems to me that when I talk to lots of programmers and they give me their origin story, it somehow includes, you know, oh yeah, I got into programming because I wanted to make games. I swear a strangely high percentage of people say this. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I talk to them, I'm like, awesome, what have you made? And they're like, oh, nothing. You know, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> a little something, but, yeah, nothing. <laughs> and I think this is kind of tragically sad. Am I the <laughs> only one that runs into this? No, it's a, it's a pretty common thing. So a lot of people say they want to make video games, and they play a video game, and they go, oh, man, I want to make video games. And then they sit down, and they realize how much work goes into making the simplest of video games, and then they give up, and they go back to playing video games. It's, <laughs> it's pretty common. So that just leads me to one question, then. How do you make video games? <laughs> just a little uh, question. Well, that's an easy, it's such an easy question. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. you, you start eight years ago and you, no. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's a couple ways of going about it. The way I did it was since I was learning back when I was 11 and it was the, uh, well, I could say it was in the 90s when I was 11. At that point, you sat down and you wrote your own engine and you used mode 13H and there were interrupts and it was oh, very yeah. low level. That was much harder and it took like a year before you got a pixel on the screen. That was less fun. <laughs> These days, making games means you pick Unity 3D or Unreal Engine 4, you download it, you look at the sample program, and you're probably making a basic game in a couple of hours if you're already a competent engineer the level of difficulty is much lower. It still takes a ton of work to actually go from there to making a game of your own that someone else would actually want to play, but there's less of a hurdle towards getting to the fun stuff. That's a really cool point. That's so, impressive. I mean, I've always been intimidated by everything that goes into making a game. Yeah, it's it's, it's not like it's not as hard as it once was. These days, uh, back then it was, of course, C or C++. These days, it's probably going to be C-sharp, though I think... Actually, Unreal Engine is uh, C++ now. It used to be Unreal Script, which was really miserable. But yeah, it's just pretty high-level, simple stuff. It's a lot of linear algebra, so I hope your math is good. But uh, beyond that, it, 
it's not that difficult. It's just time-consuming, and there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of domain-specific knowledge. But if you're a competent engineer, you can probably segue into it without too much trouble. In my imagination, there's also a lot of non-programming creation of assets that has to go on. Is that a big part of it? Uh, yes and no. So, um, if I say roguelike, does everyone know what I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so roguelikes are commonly made by programmers because they don't want to do the non-pragmatic creation of assets. So you sit down and you create an algorithm that generates your world, your NPCs. You probably go onto a free sprite website or whatever and download some sprites that are appropriate for a 2D top-down game. And then you're working on Dwarf Fortress, even though you're a programmer that can't make a happy face without it looking horrible. So it, <laughs> there are ways of doing it without an artist. Having an artist is really important for a lot of other kinds of games, but a lot of programmers end up in procedural, at least at first, just because there's more that they can play with without having to go near the dangerous Photoshop land. Though you're going to have to use Photoshop regardless. You need to understand how masking works and how to make a transparent sprite, and how to take a piece of art that you stole into a transparent sprite, and (laughs) that kind of thing. So how do you make a transparent sprite? Uh, You pull it into Photoshop, you use the magic wand tool to select the background, you delete the background, and then you save it out as a PNG. Awesome. Right on. Absolutely no mention of chroma key. That makes me happy. No, no. No, I'm sure actual artists, if they're listening to this, are cringing. That There's some magic you can do with, like, you make a path, and then you use the path to select. that's, That's way beyond the scope of programmer art. Just Magic wand, delete, save, done. So how do you make friends with an artist? Oh, that one's kind of (laughs) hard. I've been saving up. I like like asking the hard questions. I like that question. So, let's see. There's a couple ways of going about it. One of them is you post on a forums that attracts programmers as well as artists. As a simple example, I have moderated the games forum of Something Awful, which... You wouldn't think so, but their games forum is actually one of the best ones on the internet, even though the rumors of what something awful is. That forum, we run the SA Game Dev competition every year in July, I think it is. That tends to draw artists as well as programmers. Ludum Dare has a lot of social networking built around it that tends to draw programmers as well as artists. There's the Polycount forums, which are very artist-heavy, but it's a place where you might be able to get some. Twitter is also obviously fantastic. Twitter's probably the single most important social networking tool that a programmer can use these days. Just talk with people and make fart jokes and get introduced to artists, and it just works. But yeah, there's there's a couple of ways, and all of them involve getting out of your shell and stop being an introvert, which is really hard for most of us, and talking with people and sharing what you're doing, which probably looks awful, but you need to share it anyways. So our careful listeners heard the one sentence in there that explains why I am the Ruby Rogue with a couple of years of actual video game industry experience. Hint, it, hint, it was the fart joke sentence. So. <laughs> I actually got paid to write a game once. Just, awesome. Just once, yeah. Cool. There's a thing that I would like to point out that uh, if you if you want to make a game, you want to program a game, and you go looking for art for your game, uh, you will, or well, if you go looking for artists for your game, you will very quickly run up against. There's a thing that happens to pretty much every art video game artist out there, which is they meet up with a programmer, they get really excited, they start doing some art, and then the programmer vanishes, just does, decides not to finish the game. Right? I mean, how many games have you started or programs you started that you didn't finish? And so there's a lot of if if you want an artist to come work on your game, write the game. Uh, use placeholder art, get something simple up. OpenGameArt.org is a resource that I like to use. They've got lots of 2D tile art and that sort of thing. Get your game working, or at least in a rough sketch, and you have a much better chance of attracting an artist to say, that's really cool, that's kind of fun to play, I would love to make that pretty. Yes. Also, the the not having art thing tends to be an excuse uh, that people use when they're, uh, oh, that's yeah. the reason I can't finish this, is I don't have art. 
a lot of time, just grab some Sprite set out there, a free one or something like David already mentioned. There's open game art. You can find them in lots of places online, but just grab some free Sprite set. Who cares? It looks terrible. Or draw some very simple drawings on a piece of paper, scan it in and chop them up and damage it. You know, like they'll look terrible and that's totally fine. It's not the point at all, right? It's also possible to use programmer art and actually make a shipping final okay game. One example of this is our game, Jones on Fire. Jones on Fire's art was me doing programmer art. Uh, it started at a, at a game jam uh, a couple of years ago. It's just boxes. It's just color boxes that I slapped down and I scaled into place. And that happens to be a style that programmers can do relatively well and it looks okay. It's kind of like pixel art in that actual artists will look at it and go, ugh. And because so many programmers have kind of abused pixel art, that's harder to do at this point to get away with it. But it's a little easier with geometric art, and eventually geometric art's going to have the same thing. It's going to get flooded, and you're not going to have the problem. But still, you can make programmer art that's not awful, if, even in 3D. If you just sit down, uh, tools like Unreal Engine and uh, Unity make this easier, since you can sit down and scale the box and do it all dynamically and very easily. You don't have to go into Maya or 3ds Max and be all intimidated by the tool sets. So, yeah. yeah, there's never an excuse. Even if it's just boxes, sometimes a lit box bouncing around with decent lighting actually looks really good if you use it right. Mm -hmm. uh, Fract OSC is actually another example of this. I, I'm not, by the way, if the, if the developer of Fract is listening to this, I'm not saying you're not an artist, it's fantastic. But someone could make a passable limitation of Fract that kind of looked okay with programmer art and it would be enough to sell an artist on it and then the artist comes in and says oh hey I can make all this better and then your art game looks really good. So Megan you've said a couple of things now that I'd like to circle back to that I think are kind of cool. Um, first of all you talked about you know how far the tools have come with things like Unreal Engine and Unity and stuff like that. Unreal Engine just drastically dropped their price recently Right. And the reason they gave for that was to reach out to the indie devs. Um, what do you think about that? I think that they are gunning hard for Unity 3D. And, it, and unless Unity 3D really scrambles and updates their market offering, Unreal's going to eat their pie and their cake and their sandwich and their, their, there won't be anything left for Unity. <laughs> but yeah, they're, yeah, they're making a very, very heavy play for the indie space. And they're doing it with a, uh, cutting edge engine with some really fantastic technology driving it. So this is another one of those, how easy it is to make games these days. Unreal Engine, it used to be called Kismet, now I think it's called Blueprint. It's a visual scripting language is basically what it is. And if you've ever done a flowchart for your software, you can write Blueprint now. It's just a bunch of nodes that you connect with little arrows, and then you get game logic. And I want to say that Blueprint can then dump that into script, which you can edit, but don't quote me on that. But still, it's uh, there's that. There's Shader Lab, which lets you make... It's probably called something else now. It lets you make um, really high-end shaders and fancy effects, again, with a node-based connect this to that and, ooh, cool, look a graphical effect thing. It, there's a whole bunch of tech there, and it means that indies can make games that look really stunningly good. And you're already seeing this on Kickstarter, where... Uh, I'm not going to name names because it'd be mean, but there are a lot of Kickstarters now that use Unreal Engine 4, where if you happen to know what you're looking for, the video they're showing is basically just a bunch of stock assets that an artist arranged over a weekend, or that a programmer dubbed into a world over a weekend. And then they made a video of it and said, look at our prototype, look at how far along it already is. It's not. It's like two hours of Unity engine work. But because Unreal Engine 4 is so, so good, uh, Crytek is also kind of this way, CryEngine, whatever it is at this point, three or four. But the engine is so gorgeous and is capable of such fancy rendering that it's enough to totally fake people out and they take $60,000 and hopefully they're going to make an actual game with that. But eventually people are going to adjust to how gorgeous both of these engines are by default and then it'll go back to you actually have to show an actual game to get Kickstarter money again. But yeah, that, that's how far above everything these engines are right now. So you're blowing the lid off the fact that these people are saying, give us money to build Facebook, but what they're showing you is a video of build a blog in 15 minutes. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> 
and that's why I'm not going to name names because so the people that are doing this, it's not I, I don't think they're going out to intentionally uh, scam people. Right. It's just that you get a bunch of students together and they're trying to make a game and they basically make the framework of a game which they've made in a couple of hours and UDK or oh well it used to be UDK now it's Unreal Engine four and they go oh man guys we can actually do this look how good this already looks we can totally make this game and it's going to have litany of features that they could never get in a billion years and it's going to be easy because look at how easy it was to get this far and then mm-hmm. they put their Kickstarter together and they put their feature list together and they ask for $60,000 or whatever which is a lot but also nowhere near what they need and then yeah. they get the money and then they find out that all of that stuff is way harder than they thought it was mm-hmm. and then the projects tend to fail so it there's no malice but yes that's happening right the other question I wanted to ask, kind of uh, similar to that, is um, indie gaming seems to have just exploded in recent years, in my opinion. I mean, uh, even all the major game development engines that are uh, machines that typically focus on, you know, AAA titles and stuff, now all they want to talk about is indie gaming uh, at their, you know, releases for their new systems and stuff like that. And to me, that's really interesting. What's going on there? So this is kind of a long answer, so pull up chairs and such. I'm going to take a drink. Awesome. So the indie movement starts around... uh, Jonathan Blow and people, if you're listening, I'm going to get these dates wrong. I'm sorry. It's back around 2002, 2003, I think it was. Somewhere around in there, you get Alex Hauka, Hoka, crap. Sorry, Alex, 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 whatever. I'm terrible with names. Uh, you get Aquaria, you get World of Goo, you get... Those were two big ones, but that point there was a bunch of early games that came out around that period. This was before indie gaming was really a thing. The market didn't really exist. Steam either didn't exist at this point or was really early. But they still attracted an initial audience, and they became successes. These are the ones that proved out the idea that you could make games on your own that were relatively high-budget-looking without the giant AAA arms. And so at this point, remember, AAA is... Uh, this is right when EA is kind of surging in and the entire industry is shifting to high polygon titties and everything else. But still, these guys are doing this. Around uh, a couple years later, Steam comes out in force, and it's either they released or they opened themselves up or people stopped going low Steam or whatever it was. They open the market to indies. Uh, initially, Steam has less interest with the traditional brick and mortar, indies move in in force. And these initial people that position themselves really well make a ton of money because of the amount of audience that Steam commands and the comparative lack of competitors. That happens over the next, you know, five, six, eight years. And now you get up to the last couple of years. You're also seeing recently, the well, not recently now, iPhone back, that would have been 2007, I think is when that really exploded. Uh, that opened up another avenue for small studios to make a ton of money with uh, small games and just doing what they want and people paying them for it. So anyways, that's all developing. All of that kind of comes to a head in uh, 2010, 2011. That's when a lot of us went indie because, holy crap, this is so amazing. Now, as tends to happen in these things, the knowledge of this happening happens a couple of years past the actual swell. So by this point, Steam was already getting more and more dominated by uh, it's already getting more and more flooded so the individual successes are harder to make. Obviously the App Store is totally flooded and it's really, really hard to make a living at that point. Or, well, it's really, really hard to break in and so on and so forth. So the actual swell of people hitting the indie scene happens a little bit after whenever they really should have done it, but that's how these things always happen. So that's kind of why you're seeing a ton of people entering indie now. A lot of us entered because of that swell. Now, with uh, consoles, you mentioned, the reason consoles are focusing on indie is not altruistic. It's not altruistic in the least. (laughs) The reason they're doing it is because consoles traditionally have difficulty driving numbers for the first couple of years. Uh, this is because no one, none of the big AAA publishers can afford to do exclusives. It, it, the market's just not there. No one knows how quickly the console's going to grow. Especially in this generation, no one can really commit the resources, so you get a lot of cross-platform titles. Cross-platform titles are not a good way of selling excitement, because pretty much everyone that has a PS4 probably has a PS3. Everyone that has an Xbox probably has an Xbox 360. So if you release cross-platform, it's like, I guess I'll get whatever. 
indies are a convenient way of creating value for this console. It's not like anyone's going to buy a PS4 because, oh man, Towerfall. But once you have a PS4, and you're sitting there going, holy crap, I spent $500 on a piece of plastic, and I played Infamous Second Son, and man, it was fun. And mm. uh, now I'm kind of regretting my purchase. You go to the store, <laughs> and you go, oh shit, Towerfall, that looks fun. And so you download Towerfall, and you have a ton of fun with it, because, by the way, Towerfall is a fantastic game. By the way, the one of the developers is Infinite underscore Ammo on Twitter. You should follow him. Cool guy. Anyways, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a value add, and it's a relatively cheap value add for publishers and for platform owners, because to us, you know, $60,000 to do a port is mana from heaven, holy crap. That's like a year of survival for us. And to them, it's like, really? You guys can turn on the lights for this? Okay, here, you can have this money. We found it under the seat cushion, and yeah, sure. So, (laughs) it works for all of the parties. I'm also not saying this is totally money-grubbing. Sony has some really fantastic people Oh, I, I don't know your name. I'm sorry. They have a guy on Twitter who is their kind of Shahid. Oh, I'm, I'm, I can see his Twitter handle in my brain, but I can't pronounce it or read it properly. Anyways, he's a great, great, great guy, and he really injects excitement into it. On the other side, you have Chris Carla, who honestly believes in the indie mission, the value of indie, and he really promotes that side well. The difference in this case is that Chris Carla and his indie-focused team, they honestly believe in what they're doing, and they're doing a fantastic job of it, and they're trying very hard to make an avenue for indies in Xbone. Xbox One, Xbone, whatever. Uh, (laughs) But no one else Mm -hmm. in Microsoft gives a damn. The first release of uh, Indie on uh, Xbone was the uh, um, Strike Suit Zero. This was their one chance to say, we care about Indie. We are going to make you guys lots of money. We can do this. The release slate was empty. There were no games coming out. There was nothing even in the same window. They put it out. It got the worst of the... Th- so um, Xbone Marketplace, if you don't know, has the giant cell... The, the big one, and then there's the stack of the two slightly bigger ones, then there's the stack of the three smaller icon whatevers. That's their front page. That's kind of all that matters because the rest of their store, there's just not much there. So, the uh, they gave Strike Suit Zero the smallest of those slots, <laughs> and it got a whole three days there before it got knocked off. And it didn't get knocked off by, you know, an actually good game. It got knocked off by freaking DLC for their free-to-play fighter, and by Connect sports rivals. I mean, these games don't need promotion. They don't need mm-hmm. help. So if they honestly cared about Xbox, Indie, uh, Indies on Xbox, I think they might have, you know, not nudged it down. But they did. And it got a whole three days on visibility, and then it died. And now because of the design of the store, which is built entirely to service AAA public... If I say AAA, does everyone know what I mean? No. Go ahead, like the, the definition. The, yeah, define that for us. <laughs> okay, AAA is... Uh, well, what it used to be was a uh, marker of quality, AAA, AA, etc. AAA publishers is used colloquially to refer to your EA, your Ubisoft, your uh, <laughs> Maxis, you know, all of the giant publishers, the people that are making the $60 games. AAA basically means big-budget $60 AAA game. But it can also kind of mean big-budget, smaller $15 game like Connect Sports Rivals since it's being pushed by a larger publisher. Microsoft in this case. So that's what AAA is, the kind of big budget stuff. Point is, the entire marketplace is built to service that class of people. Uh, everything is for sale. There are no slots that are built to realistically push smaller developers because they'll just get bumped out by the people that can pay more money. The one exception to this is the recommendation engine, which is all the way to the right. You have to scroll two or three pages and it's got like two slots. It's not very useful than it usually... Oh, and my favorite part is their uh, top sellers. Their top sellers has been their two free games for the past months. <laughs> I don't think that the word selling means what they those think are, it Those does. are going off the shelf like you can't imagine, Megan. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, that just... Oh, it, it burns me that they've got that. It's just useless. They, they could have, If that's what they want, they should have a top free games... Top three games would be fantastic. But anyways, point is, this is the way the Microsoft Store works. So as much as Chris Carlo wants Indies on Xbox to be this thing, the rest of the organization apparently doesn't give a damn, and I don't know if they have the voice they need to actually get the Indies the exposure they desperately want them to give. On the other hand, Sony 
actually kind of cares. I mean, there are clearly avenues up through their corporate muckamuck that gets developers of exposure. Uh, you don't even have to be a pub funder. Uh, by the way, so pub fund is one of the deals that Sony has offered historically to help small developers do either ports or exclusives on consoles. <laughs> oh, and uh, by the way, exclusive in console terms, especially for indies, basically means not on Microsoft or not on Sony. No <laughs> one cares about PSE because I guess they still think that the PC market is tiny and forgettable or they don't care. It's, very, it's very convenient for us since we can release, like Towerfall is a PS4 launch exclusive. It's been on PC and Steam for like months. But yeah, anyways. And it's been on OUYA before that. But still, Sony has these channels and it's not just for PubFund. Uh, PubFund, sorry, I skewed that. PubFund is a funding scheme. It's basically, we will give you an advance on royalties it might even just be money. I don't remember. It might be a grant. But still, we will give you money in exchange for putting your game on here, and we'll help you do the porting, and we'll help cover the costs of QA, blah, blah. There's a lot of really neat promotion and stuff tied into it. But the point is, you don't even have to be a pub funder to get promotion. You can just publish on their store, and if they like the cut of your jib, they'll actually give you some really kick-ass placement on the store. For instance, if you go to the PS4 store right now, and you scroll through their many p categories, first of all, Xbox One is the front page, and then you literally can't find games once they've slipped off that unless you search for them by name. Sony, you scroll down, and there's a bunch of categories, and one of those categories is indie. So we have top-level, as far as categories go, visibility constantly, all the time, which is amazing. But you've got uh, all of the new releases and what's hot and day one. They've got this whole chunk of stuff at the top. At least recently, I haven't looked recently, but for a long while, Towerfall was there. It had a huge ad spot, and it's just a cool indie game. And they did the same thing for Guacamelee when it released. They've done that for a ton of games, and not all of these games have pub fun. They're just indies that released on PS4 that looked good, and so Sony chose to feature them. So... On that side of the fence, you've got this honest promotion. And you believe it or not, the Nintendo 3DS... Okay, I know of a game, and I can't name names because indies are this weird... There's a lot of behind-the-scenes conversation and helping each other out with knowing what numbers are. There is a game that released on 3DS and is also released elsewhere. 3DS is their number one market by a huge margin. I'm, we're talking like they've moved four times as many units. And these are not like sale units. These are or not, not like free units because of a promotion. These are sales. Four times as many on the 3DS as compared to anything else. I don't know if that's because of the captured market Nintendo 3DS has or if it's because they do really good promotion. But my sense is that Nintendo also actually kind of understands and cares about indies. So Nintendo and Sony, they care. But, uh, Microsoft, not so much. So, again, even though there's this overall movement towards uh, large platform owners promoting indie, that first of all, it's not altruistic. And second of all, it, it's not equal. Some of them actually care, and some of them are just kind of talking a good game. Yeah. So, one thing that, that comes to mind here, we've talked a bit about, like, these platform games and console games, you know, and being in different uh, marketplaces. One other area that I've seen games kind of coming out in is HTML5, either using Canvas or SVG. Does that affect the indie game scene at all? It seems like the marketing there would be a bit different since you're not in a place where people are looking for games necessarily. Yeah, that's kind of the problem. So on PC, if you are not on Steam, you don't move numbers. There are exceptions to this. Uh, Klipsky and uh, Jeff Vogel. So Jeff Vogel runs Spiderweb Software. They do the uh, Avernum games. I think they've stopped, though. I think they're actually moved on to another series. But anyways, they're old-school, top-down, tile-based, very cool, very deep RPGs. They have and one of my really old favorites, or did a long time ago, I think it's gone now, but called Lost Souls. Did you ever see that game? No. It was, I know just, it was a simple, kind of chess-like magic strategy game. It was really good. I liked it. Yeah, they've been around forever. So Jeff Vogel is one of those developers that was back in 2000. I think he was actually in the 90s. He has been around forever. And he's just carved out this. So anyways, the overall here is Klipsky and Jeff Vogel. They've carved out audiences by being in the market for ages and from way before Steam. Where even without Steam, they can actually make a very reasonable living just by selling new games to their audiences of people that love their games and that's the, what they play and it's very simple for everyone else steam is kind of it if you're not on steam you don't exist 
if you put a game on your website and if you get promotion on, uh, like, let's say you get an article on Rock, Paper, Shotgun and all of the bigger press, you will get, like, a couple hundred sales. You get on Steam and you're looking at the orders of magnitude more and you can actually make a living. So HTML5 only really matters on the PC space for Facebook games, and none of us go anywhere near Facebook games at this point. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, with uh, Steam being so critical, like you said, how do you think the Steam machines, when they come out, are going to affect this? Uh, that's difficult to say. So a lot of us, I'm one of them, are looking a lot at the Steam machine as being the console that we want to focus on. Just because it's cool. I, I like so this is one of those things where a lot of times indies make business decisions based on gut instinct or because of what they think is cool rather than because of what's maybe the best business decision. I personally have totally drunk the Kool-Aid on Steam Machine, Hook, Line, and Sinker. I think it's awesome, and I think what they're trying to do to the console market is amazing. And the idea of a console that I could, like, get Skyrim on and then install mods and then customize it but it's still a console experience that just turns on and basically works. That sounds freaking amazing, and that's awesome. And it, realistically, all a Steam machine is is a PC. Because I've got my, my my laptop sitting in my den right now is basically a Steam machine. I turn it on, and I use the gamepad to start Steam, and it goes into big picture mode, and now I'm playing Skyrim with mods. So practically speaking, there's not all that much difference, and I don't know how well it's going to sell, but if they can actually use this to convert a ton of console gamers into effectively PC gamers, but it's still console gamers, and if these machines maybe make more people skew to Linux so that we've got more games on the Steam box, and we can just buy one of these things, and that can be it basically, if we can get, if I could tear my, turn my Steam, my Den machine into a Steam box such that I don't have to go through Windows to get to Steam, and so that all of it just works without so much niggling, that'd be awesome. So, and that's the thing, that there's a lot of selling the dream there of all of the console coolness, but with all of the PC compatibility and the customization stuff and modability, that's awesome. But that's the dream that I've bought into, and I don't know if the reality will necessarily be the same thing. But I sure hope it is. Me too. I'm super excited about the Steam machines. But, but yes, but the, to answer your question, yes, a bunch of us are, fo- are looking at the Steam machine excitedly, not necessarily for good business reasons, but yes, there's a lot of interest in it. I have another question that's not related to Steam machines, and that is mobile games. Mm-hmm. Do you have to approach those differently from the console games or the PC or full-screen games? Kind of. So the big difference between uh, console and PC games, there's almost no line between them at this point. Almost every PC game released has console support, or sorry, gamepad support, because a lot of us on PC at this point prefer gamepad for gaming. So PC and console are pretty much the same thing at this point, so long as you're using an engine that makes porting easy. Mobile is different because mobile games, with some exceptions, you can't make large quote-unquote mobile games, like you can't make, uh, for instance, I wouldn't make Hot Tin Roof and try to release it on mobile. There will be a mobile port, which is released after the desktop, and I'll get to that in a second. But you need to make smaller games because you need to make smaller bets since the right way to get success in mobile is to put out a lot of games and figure out which of them are going to hit. Because you really can't with easily control what's going to be a hit on mobile and what's going to be a flop on mobile. A lot of it's dependent on whether or not Apple or Google are willing to feature you. And whether they're willing to feature you or not is heavily dependent on your relationship with them. And you build a relationship with them by releasing lots and lots and lots of games and gradually getting a following such that Apple actually cares about you as a developer and maybe gives you that juicy featuring slot. It, 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 you kind of have to take the shotgun approach. Whereas if you take the shotgun approach on PC, that you, yeah, it doesn't work. You need to make larger, bigger, fancier, bigger bets. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like... Does. We see a lot of games on PC that are iterating a lot, like Minecraft or Prison Architect that are, they're released in, you know, almost alpha state sometimes. And you buy in early and you get updates that completely change the game as you go along. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that would not fly in mobile. No. You, You would get a one star review for changing a feature. Exactly. In mobile, so we, we actually ran into this with Jones on Fire. Jones on Fire was a critical success. 
I've been working with my mobile guy to kind of do this giant, big expansion patch thing. And what we finally realized was it made a lot more sense just to turn it into a sequel, since if we release it as a patch, uh, Apple won't care about it because it's a patch to a year-old game. Google probably won't care about it either because of the perspective. We kind of flubbed the initial release of Jones on Fire with the IAP scheme, and because those never go away, users would see the updated game, but they would still see the old IAPs that no longer exist in the game. There's a lot of weird stuff in mobile that makes you focus more on uh, sequels and series and lots and lots of games as opposed to one game that grows over time. There are exceptions, which are the kind of Minecrafty games like uh, The Blockheads! which is kind of like the mobile approach to Minecraft, and there's also mobile Minecraft, and those patch over time, and they've got large communities, and free-to-play games patch over time. Basically, free-to-play games patch over time. But other stuff that's different, not so much. That's cool. So shifting focus a little bit, let's uh, talk about the gaming community. You already snuck in a reference to uh, one of, in my opinion, the cooler parts of the gaming community, and that's Ludum Dare. Do you want to tell us what that is? So Ludum Dare, is it Dare or Dare? I have I'm, no I've, idea. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I say Dare because I heard someone else say Dare, but I always said Dare before that, so I don't know. Ludum Dare. Uh, it's a game jam. A game jam is a contest, or not a contest, a an event, where a bunch of developers come together, either digitally or physically, and they get handed a theme, and then they make a game to that theme from scratch. In The typical format is 48 hours, Global Game Jam is 48 hours, but there are also game jams that take a week, like 7-Day Roguelike or 7-Day FPS. There are also jams or competitions that take a month, like SA Game Dev. But the gist is, you come in, you get the theme, and then you write the game from scratch. From scratch is kind of a fungible term. Some people come in with pre-existing engines, and then they reskin them to match the theme. Some people come in and literally sit down with C++ and write it from literal scratch bare metal. Obviously, people coming in from scratch using GameMaker are going to have an advantage over them because they can get a game going a lot faster. So, yeah, the from scratch is kind of fungible, but the, the idea and the spirit is that you're making the game from nothing over that time, usually with a team assembled from the community that you might have never worked with before. Game jams are a really good way of proving out possible uh, co-workers and collaborators. They're kind of a trial by fire is one way, but there's a better word for it. They're kind of a crucible! Yes! <laughs> awesome. <laughs> They're a way of forcing out a lot of personality conflicts and quirks that would otherwise take months to come out since people get very intensely involved in them. But, but yeah, they're, they're a good for a lot of way, reasons, and they're a lot of fun. The, a lot of developers in the indie space use them both to build teams as a way of proving people out and also as a way of coming up with game ideas. Does anyone here know what Amnesia Fortnite is? Nope. Okay, Amnesia Fortnite is basically a game jam that Double Fine... Okay, does anyone know what Double Fine software no. is? Nope, no. Oh, okay. So, Tim Schafer is kind of the indie god. He's this jolly guy with a beard, and he's generally one of the nicest people in the industry. He is the guy behind Grim Fandango, Day of the Tentacle. I think, I think, was it Day of the Tentacle? Grim Fandango is the one I really remember him for. Day of the Tentacle, Full Throttle, Brutal Legend, the game about a roadie that gets tra transported to heavy metal world. It's very cool. But he's done a lot of very big games, and more recently his studio has done games like Stacking and Costume Quest and a bunch of others. Still, the point is, he's been here for ages. He's done a lot of cool games. Very well liked. Uh, his studio's about 40 people large, I think, Double Fine. Uh, they, they also did a Kickstarter recently, Double Fine Adventure, to the tune of $3.5 That's kind of the what kicked Kickstarter for big budgets off. Point is, their studio does a thing called um, Amnesia Fortnite, which is two weeks over which they form teams and they create games. Almost all of their recent ideas and things that they've pitched and done have come from that. Uh, indies use game jams in a very similar way. We use them to try out ideas or technologies or whatever else that we think we might like to turn into a larger game, but don't have the time for or can't make an excuse for normally. So we just throw things together really quick in 48 hours, and that maybe becomes our next prototype or project. Other people just compete in them because they're fun. They are kind of fun, and um, uh, having done a couple of them myself, I 
And Jerome, uh, one of the things I like, though, is there's kind of a community, you know, IRC channels and stuff, so you can talk to other people uh, working on games and see what they're doing. And I just find that kind of inspiring, you know, to uh, to hang out and see people working on, on projects like that and stuff. We should say the Ludum Dare, Dare, however it's pronounced, is actually this weekend, uh, which is sad because this episode will air just after that. Oh, uh, so it just happened. but. It happens three times a year, I think April, August, and December, I believe. Uh, and then they have a special thing in October where they try to encourage you to uh, build a game in a month, put it somewhere where it could be purchased, and make $1 in sales. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, which it's is basically NaNoWriMo. Nice. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Kind of a NaNoWriMo. Event. I think they call it the October Challenge. So. Yeah, people should check that out if they have any interest in doing it. To me, it's it's kind of a low-friction way to just try to start playing a little bit, you know. And if I could also interject and suggest that when you're looking up Ludum Dar, blah, 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 it's, it's, so look up LD48. That's, that's how you actually find it. That's the easiest way. Also look for 7-Day Roguelike, which is 7DRL, and 7-Day FPS, which is 7D FPS. Both of those are also once or twice a year. Very, very cool. Viscera Cleanup Detail and Surgeon Simulator both came out of 7-Day FPS, so highly recommended. And I think one of those hits in the next few months, but I'm not sure. I'm curious. I'm going to change the subject again a little bit. How much overlap? We talked a little bit about the gaming community, but how much overlap is there between the gaming community or or the gamers, the people that play the games, and the people that write the games? That's a good question. Well... (laughs) So this applies pretty much anywhere. Um, whenever you get interviewed, for instance, in AAA games, your interview will almost certainly include the question, what was the game you played most recently? Give me your 10 favorite games. Give me your favorite game of the genre, because this is the genre we play here. Yada, yada, yada. That's almost always going to be a thing. And you will get mm-hmm. <laughs> often hired based on your gaming tastes. You also <laughs> need to be a good candidate to not suck. But there are many interviews that you may be fub because the guy interviewing you really likes Worlds of Warcraft and you think it's stupid. And he gets offended. Just a hint, Turok 2 is always the wrong answer. Yes. So is Superman 64. Well, also possibly the best answer you can make. Yes. Man, that would start a conversation. Yes. But yeah, so uh, even in AAA, there's big overlap. Uh, you will get people in AAA that say that, uh, specifically EA, that says they're making games should not be fun. We're going to hire non-game programmers, and they're going to make games just as well because it's a system. And No, that doesn't work. <laughs> if yeah. the people making the games don't understand why they're fun. So designers especially. Uh, design is what you call a soft skill. It's really hard to quantify what makes a good designer, but part of what makes a good designer is a backlog of a ton of game experience where whenever they're looking in a room and they're trying to figure out how to fill that room, they've got this huge database in the back of their brain of all the stuff they've played through and had fun with, and they have a really good sense for what will make that room fun. Just instinctual, boom, there you go. Yep. Though the, uh, the there's also the counter to that argument that says that you need to get people that are not gamers into the space if you want new experiences. That's what you want, especially if you're making a game like Flower or Journey. Those come from experiences not informed by gaming. So ideally, your team should be a mixture of both. But what you can't do is have non-creative people. Uh, you should never be looking at a room going, what do I fill this with? Please tell me. It should be, I saw this gorgeous painting and I want to make this room feel like walking through this painting. Or I, there's this musical track I love and I want this room to be inspired by that and feel like living in that moment. Or it, I, I was on a nature hike or whatever. You need to have some creative experience to inform that thing. And whether you that creative experience is based on gaming, so I'm going to fill this with a Zelda puzzle, which is kind of the kind of design I do, which isn't necessarily the best, but it's what I do. Or if your creative experience, if your design is informed by background and music or art or whatever else, something there. If you're a widget programmer and you sit down, you're going to have trouble, and you're probably not going to make a very fun game. But anyways, so I resemble that, that remark. Um, do you remember Jeremy McGrath Supercross? 
No, I do not. Well, okay. kind of, yes. Kind of. Okay, so if you remember Jeremy McGrath Supercross, and you remember it as a fond memory, you are thinking of Jeremy McGrath Supercross 98, which was a PlayStation Gold title. It you know, went on to sell like, like 90 million copies. It made just a bundle of money. And the studio, I worked at Acclaim, and we picked up the rights for the sequel for Jeremy McGrath Supercross 2000. And I worked on the physics engine, and we had a mission... We, you know, we had some, some physics PhDs and some heavy duty computer science engineers, and we built the most accurate physics engine in a motorcycle racing game ever. And it was absolutely no fun to play. <laughs> and the game was an utter flop. It just stunk. And I still will pull it out and play it and go, yeah, that is so accurate. Look at the loving attention to detail that we paid on those rigid bodies, but, but that it's not fun. And that's, that's the key. This is a life skill. If you're doing web programming, right, you think it's all about web requests. It's not. It's about the web experience. And with games, it's the same thing, right? I mean, world of goo, you're sticking blobs on the screen. That's not accurate physics, but it's fun. And that's what you have to do with games. Yes. Sorry, end rant. <laughs> no, no, this is actually a really good place to interject. Okay, all of you people listening at home, I want you to go to Google, and I want you to type in juice it or lose it video, all separate words. Google that. What this does is it teaches you, the video is a really good one, it shows you how important the concept of juice is to video game experience. Juice is all of those little, uh, I took in my example, Jones on Fire, the little bouncy squishy movement that they do when they move. That's an example of juice. Camera shake, lasers, light shows, everything you can do to make the experience of a game more fun, more kinetic. But Google that. That uh, juice is the difference between, say, a uh, they show you the demo. A Pong demo, which all of you will probably start by making in like a week. Pong is really easy. Your Pong demo will suck. But if you sit down and you spend another week making the Pong demo juicy, it might actually be something you can get your friends to play. That's one of those concepts that's really super important to learn as a designer, and it touches on what he's saying of making it fun. Though I also have to say that, as an artist, fun is not the only metric by which we should judge artistic endeavors. Uh, something like <laughs> Train. <laughs> Google Train. If you can find someone to play Train with you that doesn't know what Train is, it's a board game. In that case, you could argue that the experience is fun, but that it shouldn't be. Uh, but still, uh, tr fun is... Uh, I don't want to spoil it in case people don't know what it is and they have a chance to play it. Uh, you, if, you're, if you're a board gamer and you have someone that has train and you tell them train and they go, ah, play it with them. But still, fun is not the only metric by which we should judge artistic endeavors. Uh, fun is not necessarily the goal. Uh, engaging is probably a better metric. But still, what he's saying is true. It engagement matters. You can't just make an accurate physics engine and expect it to be fun. You have to be thinking about the player experience or the user experience with whatever it is you're making and making that engaging and interesting in some way. Absolutely. But yeah, that's my rant. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to pick this on the show, but I, I see it's been picked a while back, but there's an iOS game called Beat Hazard, and it's just a space... It's asteroids. That's all it is, is asteroids. It's a ship shooting at enemies, but they pull your entire iTunes library into the soundtrack and everything moves and jiggles with the beat of your own music and the levels last as long as the songs last and you can't put the stupid thing down <laughs> the noises i made when i first played that game were a little ridiculous yeah <laughs> yeah i played it to rebecca black's friday and it's the most fun i've ever had listening to that song it's the <laughs> it's the only fun i've ever had listening to that song so. oh god <laughs> so let's turn this around just a little bit, Megan, before we close it off. We've talked a lot about the industry and the community and stuff like that, where games are going, where they've been. What about if you're someone listening to this and you think you have a little bit of interest and you want to get into it a little bit, but, you know, you don't, you don't want to go all in until you see how things are. What about, I mean, we've talked about a lot about, like, Unity and Unreal Engine and things like that, but... People listening to this podcast are mostly Ruby programmers or even other developers, C-sharp, Python, whatever. And all of those have game engines, Pygame, uh, in Ruby, we have Gosu, uh, etc. You know, how is it to get started on those engines and just to try things out? I mean, not so much from a, you know, 
I plan to make money on Steam with this, but more is it just I want to try and get into gaming a little. Any recommendations there? Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, the uh, the thing I always have to start with, ideas do not matter. I don't care what your idea is. I don't care if you think it's the next greatest thing. Ideas do not matter. Everyone has ideas. Abolish the idea that you're going to make the great American novel in video game form. Just start with that assumption. I know it hurts, but move past it. Well, first of all, <laughs> The Grapes of Wrath would be a lousy video game premise. <laughs> I don't know. What <laughs> but still, okay, but start there. Abolish that. Just start by making something simple like Pong. I would say make a card game, but card games suck because you've got to do the deck shuffling logic. Don't make a card game. Make Pong. Just start <laughs> uh, Pi game, the Ruby one, I don't know as well. But um, if you're a C-sharp developer, Unity is probably the best C-sharp engine. Though if you want to go without Unity, Mono game is perfectly acceptable. Pick one of those engines. Uh, the, the key is you want portability. Uh, you don't want to write in native... Uh, if you can avoid it, don't write in native C or C++ using DirectX or OpenGL, because then you're going to want to make that game work on a Mac or on a Mac of DirectX, or on mobile, and you're going to hate hate life. Pick a portable engine. So Mono Game, I, I'm pretty sure Pi Game is relatively portable. It doesn't matter. Pick that, make Pong. Just start there and figure out if you enjoy it and if it's fun, and get someone to sit down and play your game. And I know you don't want to do that because you're going to say it's not fair, it's not good enough, and it's mm-hmm. not pretty. Do it anyways. Get that feedback going between you and users. And then you want to make progressively larger games. Do not, I repeat, do not make an MMO. Everyone does this. <laughs> Don't make an MMO. You have no idea how much... I, I was the senior graphic programmer on LEGO Universe, so please trust me when I say you don't want to make an MMO. Never. I don't care. Whatever your reason is, it's not good enough. Don't make an MMO. Make a small game. And also don't make an open-world RPG. I know some of you want to make Skyrim. Skyrim took a team of 400 people five years. Make Pong. Make Breakout. Make a game about a yeah Tetris. Make a game about a little man who jumps and shoots other little men. There's a long gaming tradition of making men that shoot other men. And there's lots of free sprites for that. Yes, that's the other thing. It's much easier to find sprites for these kinds of things. Or make a puzzle game, uh, something like Threes. I mean, look at how successful Three was. Though, by the way, Threes took two years to make for a team of two or three. So those are deceptively simple to make. But it's it's relatively easy to make a simple puzzle game. It's harder to make a puzzle game good. But start simple, start small. And more than anything, focus on mobile. So if I could go back in time and start my career over again, what I would do is while I was still a student especially, or if I was working a job where I had evenings to myself and I was just goofing around up code anyways, I would spend those evenings making free-to-play, not, well, free-with-ads mobile games. And I would integrate the ads in a relatively simple way. I would use Vungle. Vungle is very important right now because the monetization is very effective. You basically make an arcade game or something else that says, I'm sorry, you've run out of lives. Would you like to watch a video ad for three more lives? Something like that. Look at Disco Mm -hmm. Zoo if you want an example. Make a game like that. Release it. Keep releasing games like that. If you could, so Jones on Fire, I released a year ago. It was a critical success, never financial. It still makes me a hundred dollars a month, mostly because of ads and the occasional purchase. If I had twenty of those games released at this point, I could do whatever the hell I wanted for the rest of my life, and it would just keep making money. The tails on these things are insane. And as you release more, they make more and more and more because you can convert the audience of your first game to your second, and your second to your third, and so on and so forth. So start making small games that you can port to mobile and make them free ad-driven. They're going to suck at first. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Just make them better and better and better and start stacking that back catalog up. That's probably the single most effective way of easing yourself to being an indie developer in today's market. Mm-hmm. The other way is by making larger games going into Steam or whatever, but that takes a lot more effort. Uh, especially if you're just starting, just make small games, make small mobile games. And the coolest part about small mobile games is you can put them on your phone and say, hey, play this, and people might actually play it. If your game takes sitting down at a computer, it's really hard to do that until you've got friends and a network to convince people to do that. But a phone is easy. You throw a phone at someone, and they'll play your breakout clone, almost guaranteed. Yeah, that's what I'd say. Awesome. That's great. 
Oh, and uh, platform and technology, be platform agnostic. It really doesn't matter if it's Pygame, if it's Monogame, if it's Unity. All that matters is you're comfortable with the language and it's portable. Uh, if it's a game maker, I don't care. Game Maker, Stencil, both of these are portable. Just pick something that allows you to make games quickly and that you enjoy using. That, that's the only thing that matters. Who cares if it's... You'll, you'll get bitched at by C++ developers that, oh, you're, you're not low-level enough. Screw them. It doesn't matter. Just have fun. Pick something you can work effectively yep. in. I shipped. That's the answer to that. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Fair enough. All right, we got to wrap this up so I can go make my MMO. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's see if we can fit some other TLAs in there. An MMO, F- FPS. I don't know. Anyway, if it's, a big, if it's a AAA game that ever costs sixty dollars, don't make it. <laughs> yeah. Seventy in the case of Final Fantasy. Yes. Okay. All right. Let's do some picks. James, what are your picks? So I'll just throw out a bunch of links here that are quasi relevant to what we've been discussing. The first two are a couple of Ruby uh, conference talks showing how to use Ruby Gosu to create games. And the first one definitely has Megan's approval because the person giving the talk builds Pong on stage. So it's awesome. It's, it's really cool. And you get to see how, you know, you do that. And the second one goes into kind of some different stuff, but it, it shows things like parallax movement and stuff like that. So kind of interesting. Uh, I'll throw those out, and then I'll just throw some links to, like, I'm surprised at how much books and stuff there are these days for uh, people wanting to make games in various languages or platforms or targeting children, so it's a fun thing you can do with your kids just to spend time, you know, uh, spend some time showing your kids how to bounce a ball around the screen and Ruby Gozu, it's fun stuff. So yeah, I'll just throw out a bunch of links for people looking for game resources. That's it. All right, Avdi, what are your picks? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll start with the technical pick. This may come as a surprise uh, to some people, but I am a longtime fan of the Apple uh, Island-style keyboards. I had one with my with my MacBook years ago when they first came out with those keyboards. I had the like the Bluetooth version of it when they didn't even have them on the MacBooks. And I love that style of keyboards. One of my favorite keyboards. One of the reasons I like my ThinkPad is that, uh, in my opinion, it is the only laptop keyboard on the market that's actually better than the uh, than the MacBook ones. Uh, they put a lot of engineering into making that island style just that much better. And I discovered recently that if you're a weirdo like me who really likes these ThinkPad keyboards with a little um, the little track point on them, you can get external versions of them. Lenovo will will sell you an external version of basically the exact same keyboard that's in the laptop, either USB or Bluetooth, whichever you prefer. Um, I got a USB one recently, and it's really cool. Yeah, that's really nice for like carrying around and for keeping on putting on my lap stuff like that. Uh, and it's got the pointing device right in there. That's the only technical pick I have. Last week, which will be two weeks ago when you're listening to this, I was actually on vacation. I was thinking about it. And I think this is my first, this was my first real proper vacation since, basically since I was 18 years old. And, uh, we went down, we, the whole family went down to the Smoky Mountains and my pick is basically just the Smoky Mountains. Uh, they are beautiful. They are, they have many, um, wonderful sights that you can see in the, in the park. Uh, we stayed in Gatlinburg. There are a lot of really nice cabins you can get on the mountainside in Gatlinburg. Um, a little warning, Gatlinburg itself is kind of crazy built up in recent years. It's become this sort of boardwalk in the mountains with crazy, crazy touristy commercialization. So it's a bit much. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there's some cool stuff there for kids, especially over in Pigeon Forge. There are some really neat activities for kids. Um, so that aspect of it is nice. And uh, speaking of kids, one other pick I have is just the idea of if you have a local science center nearby, like in whatever city is near to you, uh, one of the greatest things you can do if you have little young kids is to get a family membership to that place and just take them there when you can't think of anything better to do. We uh, we did this recently. Uh, We have the Whitaker Center in in Harrisburg, which is an hour or a little less away. And uh, I got a a subscription there. And and on cold days or rainy days when it's like Saturday and it's family day, but I don't know what else to do, I can take them up there. And they it's easily, you know, three, four, five hours of of fun for them, uh, just playing with all the different exhibits. So um, just a, a great thing to do for when you have kids. And I think that's it for me. Awesome. 
All right, uh, David, what are your picks? Okay, well, uh, like James, I'm going to pick a, a bunch of game libraries, but actually I'm going to let somebody else pick them. Uh, Ruby Toolbox uh, has an entire category for game libraries where they list all of the game things that you can use, to, or all the gems and whatnot that you can build out there. Uh, the two popular ones, of course, are Gosu uh, and Chipmunk. Chipmunk is a physics engine that uh, integrates well with Gosu, uh, I have to admit, I'm really busy this week. I do not have time to do Ludum Dare, Ludum Dare, but I kind of want to because there's also a gem now called Rel Easy that, or Rel Easy, I guess is maybe what it's called. Um, yeah, that lets right. you, it lets you take a Ruby program, uh, a Ruby script that you've written and it will build, uh, like a DMG file that you can run on OS X and it will build an EXE that will run on Windows. And you have to be careful about which version of Windows you use, or Ruby you use. You have to use 192. If you want to target OS X, but you're not on OS X, you have to use Ruby 192. If you want to target Windows from other OSs, you have to use 192 or 193 or something like that. So it's it's, it's a little 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 fiddly. But Releasy will not compile most gems, but they specifically have targeted they've they've included gosu and chipmunk specifically so that you can build games with a physics engine in it and push it out you can you can build on osx linux or windows and you can target osx linux and windows and so if i do go into ludum.a i guess uh, i'll give you guys a report next week and uh, tell you how it went but uh i'm probably going to chicken out so i'm just going to say that right now but uh i'm kind of excited about that and I hate to be on the game episode and not pick a game, but the reality is I've been replaying Half-Life, like the original, <laughs> uh, the, like I played Half-Life and then I played Opposing Force and then I played Blue Shift. These are all on Steam now. They look like crap. You know, you put them on a 1920 by 1080p monitor and, <laughs> uh, you know, and the pixels are as big as your head, but some of the great thematic and theatric moments, you know, like shooting down a helicopter was never done in a video game before this. And he's like, oh yeah, this is where that started and that sort of thing. And uh, I'm now, actually I just finished Half-Life 2, Episode 2, and if Valve doesn't write Episode 3, I think they should be forced to watch the ending of their own Episode 2 cliffhanger over and over again until their eyes bleed. And uh, that's, <laughs> just my, that's just my opinion on that. But those are all available on Steam. And uh, those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a bunch of picks, and I guess I'll pick a couple of games that I've been playing recently. One of them is one of those AAA games. I've been playing Diablo 3, and uh, I've been enjoying that. I've also been playing this really old game that I've really been enjoying. It's called Multiwinia, and there's a, <laughs> there's a prequel to it, or there's a, there's a game that came out before it, Darwinia, that I haven't had a chance to play yet. And those are both on Steam as well. I actually got them as bonuses for buying like the upgraded package for prison prison architect. Yeah. I did I did the same thing. You also <coughs> get uh Uplink and Defcon 5 everybody dies. Uplink was a good game. I believe Uplink and Darwinia they came to the Mac a long time ago through Ambrosia if anybody remembers them. They did the Escape Velocity series which was also pretty good. So so those are my game picks. I'm also going to pick the episode 47 of the iFreak show, where we talk to uh, Brianna Wu, Amanda Stenquist-Warner, and Maria Enderton from Giant Space Cat about game development. They, you know, they talked a lot about the Unreal Engine, I think it was. But it was, it was a really good episode, too. Kind of got me excited about building and playing games, even though I haven't done anything with it. And then I'm going to pick a few other things that I've just enjoyed lately that I'm probably never going to get around to picking if I don't just pick them, so this is going to be a long list. I recently uh, listened to Hatching Twitter, which is a, a book about how Twitter kind of came into being from, you know, all of the stuff that they were doing. It has a really interesting uh, story to it. I also listened to The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey, and that's kind of my penance for not being out of debt yet, so I'm just going to listen to that like every month that I'm not out of debt. And then the other one that I want to pick is Platform by Michael Hyatt. And if you're running a business, if you're trying to build marketing of any kind, Platform is a terrific guide to that. The audiobook is about four hours long, and I'm guessing that if you read it straight through, it'd probably take you about that long. 
And then the last pick I have is something that I've been playing with lately. It's called HabitRPG.com, and I it might have been picked on the show before. But basically what it is is you go in and you put in all of the habits you want to start and all the bad habits you want to quit. And then when you do it, then you click on it and you get points and coins for doing whatever it was that you were supposed to do. And if you participate in one of your bad habits, for example, sometimes I have this habit of like chewing on my fingernails. You didn't need to know that, I guess. But so I click a minus on there and then I lose life points for doing it, which is oddly effective for me, even though none of it is real. Anyway, those are my picks. Megan, what are your picks? So uh, I'm going to throw out links to Unreal Engine 4 and Unity, obviously. So UE4 is a good choice if you're a C++ developer and want to do that. Unity is a good choice if you're C Sharp. The mentions of educational stuff reminded me, going to throw out a couple links for kid-appropriate stuff. One of them is called Scratch. A good friend of mine works on this. Uh, Scratch is a programming language designed to be used by kids. And it is, it's teaching kids as young as eight, seven, six to write software and they can make games in it. It's a very cool thing if you're looking for something that you want to do with a younger girl, younger boy, kids, basically, that, uh, you can do with the, with them as kind of a family thing. It's a good choice. The other thing is if you're, if you're, if you're ever in Boulder, go to NCAR. NCAR is really cool for kids. They've got a lot of neat shows and a lot of exhibits. It's kind of the same. If you're in the area and you want to do a sciencey thing with your child, that's a great choice. Game picks. I have to say Fract OSC. Throw that, throw that link out for that. It just released on Steam. It's a game where you explore a musical world and your interactions with the world influence the music and the music, the synth that drives the world, in turn drives the world. And you can customize the world and create your own worlds by composing music, which you then submit to other people that, that becomes levels. It's this really cool interplay between the two. Though I have to admit I've mostly been playing Skyrim, so I guess I'll throw what a pick for Skyrim. <laughs> and finally, it, the on the Game Jam note, I did want to point out that one game a month is still happening. The idea with one game a month is you make a game per month. It's kind of a permanent Game Jam, and a lot of people use it to inspire themselves. So I'll throw out a link to that. You're going to miss LD48 and all of that, and 7-day FPS is until later this year. But you could, in a couple days, start your one game a month for uh, May. That's it, though. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming, Megan. Thank you for having yes, me. Yes, this was awesome. Yeah, Very thank good. you, Megan. No worries. Before we wrap up, I want to remind everybody we are still reading Object Design, and we'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Go pick it up, and as we said before, the best place to get that is Safari Books Online. And I don't think we have any other announcements, so go sign up for Parlay, and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous deployment service that just works. Set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for a lot of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. Start with their free plan. Setup only takes three minutes. CodeShip, continuous deployment made simple. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.